We call ourselves the microbiome innovation company. We want to be the intel within for the microbiome, where we're powering innovation, not just for ourselves, but for others in the industry. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Afif Ghanoum, a biotech attorney by background and the CEO of Biome Health, which he co-founded with his father, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum, a leading microbiome researcher and recognized for naming the microbiome, which is the body's fungal community. With over 30,000 citations and 500 published papers, Dr. Ghanoum is one of the top 0.5% of cited microbiologists and top 2% of all scientists across all disciplines and has been continuously funded by the National Institute of Health since 1991, including just receiving his latest NIH grant at the age of 72. Leveraging his own background launching and selling consumer products in over 27,000 stores and licensed IP to companies around the world, in addition to holding several biotech patents, Afif partnered with his dad to commercialize research and the science into world-class consumer products through their company, Biome Health. With state-of-the-art science and one of the largest microbiome data sets in the world that combines bacterial and fungal sequencing, Biome was the first to address the critical link between fungi and bacteria in gut health. Over the last year, Biome has expanded its role with some of the largest global ingredients companies to offer a world-class suite of services, including product development, leveraging its industry-leading database, bioinformatics, testing, and clinical trial support. Their first Biome FX probiotic supplement was designed to specifically help reduce digestive plaque found in the gut. Biome is currently embarking on a clinical extension directly for medical practitioners and is quickly expanding into retailers across the country, as it not only manages one of the most comprehensive gut health datasets, but also has access to one of the largest collections of fungi strains, second only to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. In late 2022, Afif secured $7.5 million in funding for Biome to support their broader vision going forward. Biome is a fascinating company based here in Cleveland, and I really loved learning more about Afif's journey building it. So please enjoy my conversation with Afif Ghanoum. One of my favorite parts of, of doing this podcast now at this point is the community around it. And I love that a few weeks ago, Mac Anderson from Cleveland Kitchen tagged you in this comment on one of the Lay of the Land's posts. And, and maybe the next day after that, I see that you've publicly closed on a, I believe, a seven and a half million dollar round. And, and now here we are to, to share your story. And, and so I've been very excited to, to hear all about it, having you know, not really had uh, yourself or, or biome health on, on the radar. So thank you for, for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for have, having me. I really appreciate it. So the, the more and more I'm hearing about the importance of the microbiome and, and sort of as like the next great bio frontier where we can potentially, I don't know, unlock some of the greatest knowledge about not just digestive health, but human health and disease at large going forward. And so with that, I, I am also very excited just to, to learn more about the, the work you're doing in the space, but would love to start with how you found yourself down the rabbit hole of, of fungi and bacteria and the microbiome at large. You know, where, where, does that, where does that actually come from? Yeah, great question. So I'm a biotech attorney by background. I 
was a lawyer at two uh, AmLaw 100 law firms here in Cleveland. And, you know, at the end of the, the financial recession, like 2008, 2009, I was working like crazy as a corporate lawyer. And, you know, as a lawyer, you make other people's dreams come true, you know, because you do a lot of important legal work for them. At the same time, my dad had this really cool technology out of his lab uh, at Case Western School of Medicine. And he was telling me, oh, this is really cool. These guys want to start a business with it. And he was really excited about it. But at the end of the day, because he's an academic scientist, he really did not get to do a lot in the business side. He really ended up with almost no equity out of it. And I was sitting here thinking, I'm helping all these people. You know, uh, I'm part of these legal teams that are helping people realize their business aspirations. And my own dad is feeling, you know, slighted and basically ripped off in the situation of something that was out of his own lab. So we started in 2010, really working for ourselves. We're on the regulatory and uh, business and legal side. I understood that. My dad, you know, understood the science. And we first did that with an oral care company. But then in 2016, my dad was doing research on uh, biofilms in the gut and really how bacteria and fungi really create these aggressive plaques in your gut. Um, have you heard of a biofilm? No, I, I was just going to ask. Okay. So the biofilm you've likely heard of is the plaque on your teeth, right? So the plaque is a biofilm. So what that does is it puts a hard shell over germs that start working against your teeth, your gums. And because it's really hard to remove, can cause a lot of issues. So there are actually biofilms all over your body and um, biofilms you'll see is like, if you see a pier and you see that sort of scuzzy stuff where the water meets the, you know, the pier, that's a biofilm, right? So he found that biofilms that were fungal and bacterial were actually forming in the gut. So his paper got all sorts of notoriety. And I thought that's kind of interesting. I've never heard of fungi in, in the gut. And so when I went to work, doing was looking at, well, how can I actually break down that biofilm through utilizing probiotics? So uh, came up with a way to do that. And it was the formulation of Colbiome. So that's how I got into it. And so um, since then, we've launched, you know, a number of different products. Uh, we do a lot in the microbiome data space. We have a testing platform. So we have you know, thousands and thousands of gut health samples from, uh, which is a fancy word for, we take DNA out of people's poo what, that they submit to us. <laughs> and we analyze it and we see what's going on, what organisms are in your gut. Um, you know, and help, we help people uh, nutritionally figure out how to, you know, feel better from their digestive issues. So started, you know, with a couple of people and now we're up to a team of, I don't know, probably 20 people. Wow. But before we kind of delve into the the business and the the crux of the the work that you're doing today, I think that was some helpful context. But you know, perhaps going a, a little bit deeper in terms of, I just feel that the depth of biological understanding required to fully understand the the nature of your work and and your father's research. I, I want to start maybe with like a rudimentary baseline of, uh, you know, explain it like I'm five kind of you know overview of perhaps a little bit of the history into how our understanding of, you know, what microbiomes even are and how yeah. that's changed over time. And, um, you know, just kind of set the stage for, for the conversation. hundred percent. So the simplest way to think about it is germs. When we were growing up, you're a lot younger than I am, I think, but especially when I was growing up, germs were viewed universally as just a bad thing. Like we wanted to get rid germs of germs bad. <laughs> what 
uh, science has shown us is that one, not only are not all germs bad, but there are what we call native organisms that live on our bodies. And uh, microbiome now is synonymous with your the germs that live in your gut, but your skin has a microbiome, your gut obviously has a microbiome, your mouth has a microbiome. Uh, my dad actually identified 100, 101 native fungal organisms that live in your mouth natively. Mm. And so the microbiome, when we talk about that, is understanding that there's a native community of organisms that lives in a specific part of the body. So when we talk about the gut microbiome, we're talking about the bacteria, the fungi, even the viruses that live in your gut. And what we found is while it is complicated, it's also pretty simple. What the science has shown is that you want a balanced microbiome of the good guys, the bad guys. And when you have that homeostasis, it seems to benefit your health. So the analogy I really like is the ocean, right? You wouldn't want to be stuck in a pool with a shark, but you don't want to get rid of all sharks because then there's going to be unintended consequences where, you know, the uh, prey they keep in check are going to you know overgrow and they're going to eat too much of the algae and then without more of algae, blah, 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 you know, on down. So it's like anything. You really want homeostasis in the way you balance your gut. And when you do that, that seems to be connected with all sorts of areas of wellness, everything from uh, what we call the gut brain axis to obviously digestive issues to even things as uh, crazy as the intensity of pain or your ability to properly metabolize drugs is impacted by the uh, balance of your microbiome. And perhaps it's it's too difficult in the time we have to, to give a full comprehensive overview, but you know, what's kind of an overview of the, the nature of, you know, your father's research at large and, and some of the like big takeaways from it? Yeah. So he's the scientist that named the mycobiome, which is the fungal community in the body. So when you talk about the myco, which means fungi, mycobiome are just the fungal organisms that live in our body. So his research really has been deeply in uh, to how the mycobiome interacts with uh, other parts of our body, but also how biofilms interact with our body. So that's probably the easiest way to look at it is basically how fungi, both good and bad, uh, impact our health and then how biofilms, good and bad, uh, impact our health. And again, biofilms, the simplest way to think of them are just plaques. Why have uh, fungi been ignored for so long? Uh, you know, I feel like the, the more I learn about, you know, mushrooms at large and, and their, you know, kind of real importance, obviously within ourselves, but just in nature at large, I, I feel like they're, they're underrated. Why, why ha, have we just not turned our lens towards them very much or? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of reasons. One, when we call like medical fungi, like the ones that grow in your body, part of it is become, and my dad's actually written about this. It, it becomes self-fulfilling where national institutes of health were funding all sorts of virus research, bacterial research, but they weren't funding a whole bunch of fungal research. So guess what happens? The innovations around fungi start to lag behind the areas that are highly funded. It's really only the last you know decade where that funding it's still way favored on viral and bacterial research, but fungi is starting to be seen in all sorts of papers that it's got a tie to cancers, it's got a tie to you know as we're doing gut health, it's got a tie to all sorts of things like and, and now there's shows like The Last of Us showing that hey like <laughs> yeah. fungal pandemics these things and you know those are real, um, but. Can't, fungi is also one of those things that the more you explain it to people, the more they actually have heard of it. So an easy example is a lot of women, when they take an antibiotic that kills all the bacteria, they'll 
uh, have uh, yeast infections. Well, yeast infection is fungal infection. The reason is when you get rid of all the bacteria, the fungi grows out of control, right? So, or babies with what is often called thrush is candida uh, candidiasis, where they get it in their mouth. That's because they're so little, their immune system still developing. Same with you know HIV patients or really immunocompromised people. So we've seen fungi creep up more than people kind of realize, but it, it really has just been uh, overlooked just because it hasn't been a huge area of research compared to bacteria and viruses. Hmm. So the kind of pieces to the puzzle coming together here when we think about the, the founding of, of Biome Health and, and, and the work you're doing today, I imagine like the potential implications of, of the, the research and the learnings from it, there are a lot of different directions that you could have gone at the onset. So when you began to think about commercialization, I, I guess, you know, where, you know, how did you decide where to focus, you know, in, in this whole problem space? So we decided to focus on dietary supplements because instead of as like a FDA approved therapeutic because of it's just a simpler regulatory schema and dietary supplements are a huge proven market. And we thought, you know, if we brought better science to this space or very good science, you know, we would be in a very good position. So that's where we decided to focus. And, you know, it's, it's not every, everybody listening to this and obviously I'm, I assume yourself is more than aware of dietary supplements, right? So that's why we decided to focus on that is, you know, it's very hard to get things approved through FDA. You need hundreds of millions of dollars. We did, we just didn't think that made sense. Hmm. So I think it, it might be helpful just, you know, painting a picture of where the company is today, you know, how, how it's gotten to, to the point um, where it is, you know, I, I, we mentioned the, the funding round um, that, that you guys were able to, to, to close recently. You know, maybe just kind of walk us through the, the path to, to today and, and we can, you know, pull on a few threads from there. Yeah. So we launched, uh, honestly, we bought 500 units of uh, the probiotic from a manufacturer. We knew uh, a magazine called Goop was going to be running an article about fungi and digestive health and, and biome. And we thought, I hope we sell these 500 bottles, <laughs> you, you know, and it really started <laughs> with that. And we did. Uh, and it, you know, then you, we start adding additional products and then uh, really it was a team of three of us doing it when it first started. And so we went from that to offering microbiome testing to slowly, but surely getting into the data analytics game and then partnering with other companies um, to actually launch products powered by our technology. So along the way, raised angel financing. Then we did a venture capital round uh, in 2018, and then just did another uh, venture capital round this year. So the other thing is where we were essentially a Cleveland company in all aspects, employees, funding, all those things. When we initially started now, most of our team, not most, probably half of our team uh, actually is not in Cleveland. Uh, and we've raised capital from all over the U.S. That's because in the supplement and like microbiome space and supply chain space, there's a lot of expertise outside of Cleveland. So hmm. what the pandemic showed us is you can kind of hire people from wherever and it's still as effective. So that's that's kind of been the evolution of the business. It's been pretty interesting to see. Hmm. So I, d I definitely want to talk about the supplement, the the microbiome testing, the the whole data platform. Maybe if we if we start where where you had started with with supplements, 
you know, you mentioned that you imagine most of us are, are familiar with supplements. And I, I feel like there is kind of a perennial problem with supplements in, in how I feel people trust, you know, is really at the heart of that. Given somewhat of a regulatory opacity, you're not always sure that, you know, the, the efficacy of, of these kinds of, of supplements. Can you just kind of take us through how supplements work at, at kind of like a high level as an industry and then how you guys are approaching, you know, trials, efficacy, how do you, how do you actually build trust and, and what, what is the intended outcome, you know, from, from a supplement perspective? So dietary supplements at the end of the day should be a supplement to what you're doing with your diet. People often overlook that and they'll see products that make all sorts of wild claims. So one of the things I always say to people is you are responsible as a consumer to understand a few things and more and more, it's easy to get this information. One, I like to know who's making this product. Who's actually behind the product? Where is it made? You know, especially when you can buy stuff on Amazon, like this is being made in someone's basement. Like, how do you know this is actually made in, you know, an FDA audited facility, that sort of thing. I want to know what is the science that they're actually doing on the product? Did they actually do any clinical trials or are they just making wild claims of something, you know, they read on the internet? And then I also like to know what is the quality of the ingredients, right? So those are the simple things that it may take a little bit of effort, but honestly, for things that you're ingesting and putting in your body, and these products are often not cheap, it's honestly worth taking you know a half hour or so just to look up because any reputable company, you should be able to get a lot of that information just from their website. So with us, we ferment all our probiotics in the US. We package all the products in the US. We've done clinical trials, multiple clinical trials. We've published several papers in peer-reviewed journals. We just had a paper published in uh, the leading GI journal, Gastroenterology, because that's another problem. People will say, oh, we published a paper and it's like, Uncle Jimmy's Nutrition Journal, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, right. by, you know, uh, whoever. And so a lot of it really, you know, it comes down to understanding what is actually going on behind the scenes. So, so yeah, we that's one of the ways we really stand out is, is really taking not quite a pharma level, but we approach things with extremely high quality, extremely high science. But that's something that, you know, you really have to pay attention to. Hmm. The other thing uh, a lot of times people don't understand is if you're buying a product at retail, just assume the retailer probably paid 50% of that and the person buying paid 50% of that. So if you do the math quickly, when you see things that are very, very cheap, just do a little bit of mental math. And it's like, for them to make this, they are paying almost nothing. Right. And you know, it's, it's, there are these little signals of, of quality that you can look at, you know, just to clarify it. Uh, cause I've, I've always been curious about this as well. Is that the, the clinical trial and, and the, the efficacy studies, those are, are self-imposed or are those, you know, required from a regulatory standpoint, you know, when, when a supplement makes a claim, that's a great question. So where people get things twisted is if you have a prescription drug or FDA approved drug, you have to go through FDA approval and there's all sorts of crazy high levels of, of clinical trials you have to do, like years and years of development, but that's mandated in order to get FDA approval to sell a drug. Simple example, something like Tamiflu, right? That in order to get that through all sorts of things. Where people get it wrong is they think dietary supplements are not uh, regulated by the FDA. They're very much regulated by the FDA and even the FTC. So where clinical trials come into play is if you're claiming 
the product can do certain therapeutic things, you need to be able to support it. And there's some nuance there, but that's, you know, generally what it means. So for example, with our probiotic, uh, we talk about it being able to help reduce mild bloating. We can say that because we actually ran a clinical trial that showed with statistical significance versus placebo, we actually improved bloating, right? So that that's where that comes in, into play when we're talking about doing clinical trial. And, you know, there's rules of thumb, like it should be placebo controlled. It should be a third party doing it, things like that, just to, you know, kind of keep the uh, rigor of the science where it needs to be. But that's generally what you mean when, when you're talking mm-hmm. about clinical trials. So in, in addition to, to bloating, uh, you know, what are some of the, the implications and, you know, intended outcomes of, of ingesting the, this supplement? Yeah. So first I always say this, any product, whether it's our product, anything that's a dietary supplement, it's never intended, nor should it be taken to, uh, treat, cure, prevent any condition or disease. They're just not designed to do that. So what we're doing is essentially supporting your digestive health. Now we have done clinicals like with things that I would call like mild therapeutic things like bloating, so mm-hmm. you know, supporting reduced abdominal pain, things like that. But any probiotic should be done alongside, you know, what can you do with your diet? If you're really not feeling well, you need to talk to your doctor first thing. That's a step that most people, you know, don't, want to take because it can be annoying, but you really have to do that, you know? So, but more and more probiotic is kind of like a multivitamin for your gut. You know, it's your gut is, uh, so think about it this way. If you cut your skin, you can put some antiseptic, put a bandage on and it won't be sterile, but you'll pretty much keep it isolated from being, you know, reinfected Mm -hmm. with your gut you're putting food in there. There's all sorts of liquids. There's, you know, acid, there's all sorts of things impacting the organisms in your microbiome. So when that happens, that can be challenging to keep it in homeostasis, right? Like stress can throw it out of balance if you are feeling under the weather. So what a probiotic can do is really just supplement helping maintain that balance. Got it. Starting with, with the supplement, We'll layer on the, those two other that, that you mentioned. What does microbiome testing actually entail? And, and we'll start there and we'll work our way to the, you know, kind of the, the, data, the data play. Yeah, so what microbiome testing do is think about it like a 23andMe for your gut. So what you do is you sell us a very small sample of your poo. And uh, what we do is we send you a swab. And we say, if the swab is white, the testing's not right, it's got to be brown for the testing to go down, right? And so, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> so once we do that, we extract the DNA from that, what we call fecal sample, and we look at what organisms are in your gut. And then we compare that to the thousands of people in our database, and we tell you, are you high, low, you know, compared to other people? And we start seeing where you're at. Now, what's important is it's a tool, right? Once you see where you're at, you can say, oh, okay, I'm really low on this beneficial one. I'm really high on this one that's pathogenic. You can start making some adjustments. Right, uh, right. It's useful because digestive health is very confusing a lot of times. It's hard to know, why do I feel like this? Is it something in my gut? Is it stress? So it can be a really useful tool to get an idea of what organisms are actually in your gut, what levels they're at. And then you can start you know, implementing things like dietary changes, looking at different supplements, that, that sort of thing. And then on the data, when we have, you know, just 
a, a large data set, it allows us to really analyze and see what's going on in different cohorts of people, right? So um, what does the typical microbiome of a healthy person look like versus a unhealthy person versus a stressed person versus someone with lactose intolerance? There's all sorts of ways we can look at that data. Right. That's really cool because then, you know, the idea is that we can rationally design probiotics and microbiome solutions to try and optimize a, a certain kind of gut, you know, the gut of a 50 plus person, the gut of someone, like I said, you know, with stress, all sorts of things, you know, so that's where it gets pretty cool. And that feels to me like a relatively unique data set. You know, like when I, when I go to a physical on a regular basis, I don't believe the microbiome test that you just outlined it was it has ever been part of you know a normal checkup yeah no no you're right so right now um so there are a few companies that do this we are really specialists in the way bacteria and fungi interact in your gi and aside from selling it ourselves we power microbiome tests sold in about 1100 uh, practitioners offices across the us so mm. slowly but surely it is becoming more and more mainstream but um, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's one of those things that a lot of times these are people that they're just dealing with digestive issues and they want to understand why. And again, it's not, it's not going to diagnose or prevent or treat anything, but it's just a useful thing to know. Like, what are these organisms? Are they high? Are they low? We'll often have people who swear they have candida overgrowth, which candida is one of those organisms that, um, is connected to a number of health issues and they'll take the test and turns out they're not right. That mm. their Canada levels are perfectly normal, right? That's useful for people. So it's just a way to measure your nutritional health basically. Right. What, what would be some of the, the things that you could, you could gauge triage from this diagnostic snapshot, understanding it's not a, a diagnosis of anything, but you know, what, what are some of the things that, that you could take away from it? Yeah, like you could understand that. So uh, we have people that they have digestive issues. They eat perfectly well. They exercise very regularly, but they just their microbiome is a mess. And what we're able to help them isolate is that it's stress causing them issues, right? Uh, we have other people that they really don't understand that. I'll give you an example. We had a, a cluster of women that we're having all sorts of digestive issues. When we tested them, they were really high in something called zygomycota, which is a very aggressive fungi. Usually you only see that in really immunocompromised people like cancer patients, HIV patients. So we were like very suspicious that this many women would have that. So when we looked at their data and their diet, they were almost entirely cutting out carbs and dairy. And those can be very good for your gut in reasonable levels. They would never think to do that if they didn't realize that, that they were actually causing this fungi to overgrow. They're thinking cutting out dairy and carbs is actually helping them, right? So it's funny because I'll tell that story and people are like, well, what if I'm gluten you know, intolerant or I'm lactose intolerant? It's like, well, that might not work for you then, right? Like, <laughs> right. Not everybody is, right? And a lot of times, you know, we kind of live in a culture of extremes, right? It's not that you you know, someone ingests dairy, they ingest, you know, 18 pints of ice cream, right? Or, <laughs> or and the view is, well, then you got to entirely cut it out. It's like, no, shockingly, it's usually the boring answer, which is like something called moderation, right? Like just, just be reasonable. Now, again, I'm not talking about people that have actual 
intolerances, then at least you're aware of it and you can make some adjustments, right? So, but it's, uh, that's the kind of insight that you're not going to get unless you're looking at the organisms in your gut. Mm. The product manager in me is very curious about the, the microbiome testing onboarding process because I know how hard it is to get someone to just make their way through a few steps in a, in a, a mobile application. I, I'm kind of fascinated by what, what is the, you know, the onboarding process and, and friction involved there? You know, how, how do you get people comfortable doing something quite, quite invasive on, on themselves? <laughs> Yeah. So usually these people are pretty motivated because, you know, they're either optimizers or curious. They just want to know what's going on in their gut. And more and more, uh, because you you take it off like a piece of toilet paper, it's really not that big. But listen, it is poo. There's a little bit of an ick factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's definitely a niche product. It's not, you know, probiotics are mainstream. Tests like this is still not mainstream. You know, that's why one of the things we did is we developed guttest.com which is powered by our microbiome data, but it's an online quiz that takes two minutes. It's free. Uh, You do not have to put poo on your computer to use it. And uh, it is, will tell you with statistical significance if you're likely to have an imbalanced gut, right? Those are little innovations to get people slowly but surely going down the path. And if they are imbalanced, it's like, look, if you really want to know, then yeah, maybe it's worth taking a test, you know? But yeah, it's, it's definitely you know, iterations and iterations over the last, you know, six years and getting people to understand not only the test, but then removing, like you said, friction to make it a, a seamless process. So both both from a, a business perspective and from a, I don't know what you call it, health impact perspective, uh, I would love to understand, you know, as you, as you went to, to fundraise, um, you know, what was the, the vision that you kind of painted for you know, from the investor's perspective for, you know, where this company can go and what is the, the impact that you hope to have, you know, in retrospect and, and maybe just layering onto that, how you think about, you know, what, what success might, might ultimately look like. Yeah, so we're, we call ourselves the microbiome innovation company. We want to be the Intel within for the microbiome where we're powering innovation, not just for ourselves, but for others in the industry. It's, uh, as you said, the top of the program, it's an area of increasing importance, you know, understanding how to optimize the microbiome. So um, that's where we see where it is. We're agnostic, whether it's through our brands, through partners' brands. Um, and then, you know, where we see it going is probably, you know, um, a strategic acquisition to someone else in the space. But who knows, right? Like it's 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 uh, still, you know, early days, but that's that's really, you know, where we're communicating investors that's our vision that we think we can power a lot of innovation in the space so i feel like a lot of the 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 dialogue conversation that that happens around the development of of new kind of innovations like like what you've been working on is is between you know treatment and you know cures and i'm curious you know from the the research perspective you know maybe what's coming down the the pike you know, what has you most excited in terms of the potential implications for, you know, how this can actually improve health outcomes for, for, for people? You're saying the microbiome generally or what we're doing? Both. (laughs) So the microbiome generally, I think the way I say is 
we're in the 1960s of cancer research where we know the microbiome is very important, but it's very early days, right? So we're seeing a lot of correlation. We have to be very careful about how we tie causation to what we see. And I'll give you an example. There's a big tie between autism and the microbiome. And we see that a lot of children with autism have GI issues. Now there's a question is, are autism and the microbiome tied together? Is there some signaling going back? Or is there a third factor, like a lot of autistic children are, are very specific with their diet. Could that be impacting their microbiome? So their microbiome health is actually a side effect of the way they eat. It's not actually tied to their autism symptoms, right? So it's things like that where a lot of interesting signals, but right now they're just signals that we have to unwind. So that being said, it's very clear that where there's smoke, there's fire. The microbiome is going to be a critically important area of innovation over the next, you know, hundred years, because we're just we're just at the precipice of, of understanding. So, right now, what we know is if we are able to help you balance your GI, it's tied to a number of of uh, optimal, you know, health outcomes, but. It, it, you have to be very careful about how you uh, tie correlation and causation. So, but, you know, I think it would be foolish to discount the space. I just think you have to be wary of anything being seen as a silver bullet. Does that make sense? For sure. For sure. And it, it, the the question comes particularly in the context of having, you know, heard about it, you know, recently, it, it feels like it's becoming more popular. I've, I've heard it described as the next frontier. And so that to me, that kind of paints the picture of you know some some potentially really important outcomes that could come from this kind of of research and development i think that's 100% going to be the case it's it'll be a question of how and when yeah so how how do you think on the the company side of things about you know what what the what the the next you know stage of of development looks like um in terms of you know, you have these kind of three offerings from a, a product perspective. How do you think about, you know, prioritization and, and the strategy of the, 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 the go-to-market from, from here? Well, there's two answers to that. The one is the button-up answer, which is, look, we're going to continue to innovate and we are in the middle of, you know, big distribution in a number of different areas that over the next couple of months are going to be unfolding. We're really excited about that. So we'll continue to innovate, look for different ways to utilize our data for you know, new products, all, so, all sorts of things. The less polished answer is you've been involved in a startup. Until you're in the clown car, you don't understand what it's like to just grow a company. There's a lot of moving parts. You know, it, it's, you're, you're reliant on you know, 80% effort and 20% luck of things going the way you want them to go and just crazy stuff. Like we had an enormous term sheet over the summer that at the last second kind of evaporated when the economy started to change, you know? So what can I do about that? There's nothing I can do about that, right? So it's things like that where, you know, the more I do this, the more I've realized that entrepreneurism really is 80% you know, you control, and then there's that 20% that it, it just has to go your way, you know? What has it been like to, to professionally work with, with your dad? How has that, you know, dynamic played into the, this whole journey? Honestly, it's great. Like, I think it works for us because we're in completely different lanes. And he also doesn't work full-time at the company. He still is at Case. 
So part of it is you have to know if it works for you, right? Like I, I know plenty of people that it would be a disaster if they worked with their family. You know, it's, it, it's just, I know my dad and I have great simpatico. Uh, we respect each other. We know our lanes in what we know. And that's how it works. But listen, he's also, you know, we will scream and shout at each other sometimes like, you know, like anybody does in the family. Right. So um, it's but it's very rewarding. And, you know, I get to talk to him every day uh, and a lot of people don't have that, you know, so it, it's a mm-hmm. lot of fun. I want to go on a, a, a quick, I, I don't know if it'll be quick, actually, but a little detour here um, to actually back at the founding. So, something you'd mentioned was this tension that, that, that your dad had felt about the kind of technology transfer process. And it, it's something I've spent a little bit of time thinking more about is, is how much maybe latent opportunity there is for all the, the research that's done in academic institutions and how hard it feels like it is to, to unlock that wearing your lawyer hat, wearing your entrepreneur hat, like how, how does the technology transfer process actually work? And like, how, how did you actually, you know, facilitate a, a structure where your, your dad felt, you know, comfortable about the, the arrangement relative to what, you know, he had been working through? Yeah. So look, it's really well known that getting technologies out of universities is typically not easy. It's, it's, it's very yeah. tricky and take a long time. So with this, part of it is I've, I went to case undergrad. I went to case law school. I've been around, you know, the ecosystem a long time. Our previous company, we had done studies of case. I, I know them really well and there's mutual respect and all that's good stuff. Even with that, it would still took like a year to negotiate uh, a know-how license, you know, for my father's know-how around the microbiome. So it's not a fast process. Most universities, probably all universities, but we'll say most, they want nothing more than someone to be a good steward of their technology and hopefully they make some money about from it, right? I, I think sometimes where academic institutions get in their own way is they worry way too much about stuff that is not the value creator, but they think it is, right? So the publication rights, the things like, you know, the intellectual property. And I think sometimes when that's what, you know, academic centers have been built around developing IP, developing publications, all those kind of things, is that you start to think that that is the only thing that creates value for the entity. And that's the reality is it's not. You, you have to commercially turn that IP. So I think sometimes that's where there's a, a lot of back and forth is negotiating uh, rights around that stuff when it's like, guys, the reality is if this works, it'll go well for everybody. And if it doesn't, it, it won't, right? So why don't you get many shots on goal and see what sticks, right? So that's that's the reality. It is a huge untapped area of innovation. There's some really cool stuff sitting at universities, but sometimes I think you just have to know to go look for it, right? I, I knew just because it was, you know, my dad's research, but right, right. there's a ton of researchers that have interesting things. And I think sometimes people just don't think to pick up, the phone and ask, you know? Yeah, no, I, I have thought about it because it's become a, it's, it's been a pattern, uh, you know, through actually a lot of conversations on this podcast is how much of it seems to be able to come from, uh, you know, a university. And I don't know how an average person not involved with that university could have the insight to know that there's something there and then how you marry the, you know, the, the business acumen with the, the research acumen, but it, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating space. So at, as this whole 
spaces has grown and and you know proliferated in, in popularity. How do you think about competition and and the market? Has that dynamic even come into play yet? Is it still too early? I don't worry about competition, not because I think we're utterly superior to everyone. I think it's such a massive pie that there is plenty of room for a lot of winners, right? So I worry about what we're doing to execute on because, you know, I always tell the team, hey, you can talk about that stuff all the time. If this truck doesn't get to this distribution center, we don't have a business, right? So like, let's worry about our stuff. So that, you know, honestly, it's good to be aware of what people are up to, obviously, but, you know, we've been able to collaborate with a lot of, you know, our competitors and especially, you know, and and that honestly comes down to also being confident that we have very good technology. When when you reflect on the the journey that you've had so far transitioning from from law to to entrepreneurship, what has been, you know, the the most surprising parts of of the journey? What what have you learned that that you haven't expected to encounter? Uh what what are some of your reflections on on building biome? The toughest part of building a what, let me take a step back. I think as an entrepreneur, you have to understand what type of entrepreneur you are. Are you an ignition person? Are you a burn person? Or are you a, you know, exit person? So what I mean by that is ignition is like, I have a great idea and I can zero to one that idea in in a really meaningful way. So kind of like the innovator. The burn is like, okay, can you put the processes in, build out the team, build out the you know, the workflows, all those things that will make a business successful or not ultimately. And then do you have the M&A chops or whatever your exit, you know, potential is to get a deal done? It doesn't mean that when you come in and out of a different phase, that's the end of your journey. You just have to be aware of that and then supplement yourself with people that are good at that part, the other parts of the journey. So for me, I know I, I love the ignition part. I really like the innovation, coming up with the idea, actually getting execution, selling it, you know, to partners or, you know, if we're going to be in a retail or something, I love that part. I despise the process piece and, you know, all those. It's just not what I'm very good at or where I want to spend my time, right? But, you know, just it, 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 even with that being said, I spend a lot of my time there just because it's the nature of any business, right? So I think that's the first is really understanding that it's, it's, you know, you got to know the other is, is it's almost impossible to be very good at every single thing that's necessary. You, you have to be able to innovate, raise money, do sales, be a, a team builder. Like just any one of those is, is a skill you could spend an entire career on. Right. But as an entrepreneur, you kind of have to do those things, especially to get going. Right. So I think sometimes people get frustrated with themselves because oh, I'm not good at raising money or whatever. And it's like, nobody's good at it. Everybody, everybody's trying to figure it out, you know? So I think those are the things that you just have to get comfortable with or it's not going to work. On the team building side, does the technical underpinnings of, of the product make it hard to find people to work on this? Because I imagine, you know, the, the mission and all that feels like, incredibly inspiring. And so I, I don't imagine that there's a lack of interest, but do you need a, a certain, you know? Uh, it, dep- it depends on the role. So for example, we have a woman starting as, uh, you know, in our product development arm, running product development. She was with a company called Smarty Pants that is a huge gummy supplement business out of LA. 
she hasn't done that much in probiotics, but honestly, she knows how to innovate in products. She has a proven record in this space. Same with someone who's running quality systems or, or you know what I mean? So like those skill sets are transferable. Now, some of the stuff that's really niche, it can be challenging, but you know, those people are out there, especially when you can recruit outside of just Cleveland. Hmm. What are the, maybe the, the biggest misconceptions that you've heard people have about, you know, the, the space generally that, that you wish people, you know, knew? Uh, the one that dietary supplements, when they're efficacious, actually really do work. I think that's something that you either have people that are big believers, probably too much believers. They think it can solve anything. And then people that are just totally dismissive. And like many things, it's it's somewhere in the middle. That's the reality. So I'd say that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that running a startup is glamorous or exciting. Like it's it's a grind. But to me, the payoff, you know, the potential payoff is why you do it. Not just like financially, but, you know, I, I get to work on really interesting area of, of science with people that are world class. Like that's cool. But like anything, you know, it has its moments where it just sucks. And uh, <laughs> you have to understand that a lot of people don't get that, you know, the, the highs are high and the lows are, are low. <laughs> I, I think we, we've covered a lot of different ground here. I'll leave some space here at the end. If you think there's anything, you know, really important that, that we haven't touched on yet that, that you would like to kind of unpack a little bit more. Well, the, I guess the only thing I'd say is I'll hear people like, oh, you can't raise money in Cleveland. And that's just not accurate. If you have mm. something that's good, there is money. Now you might have to dig. My first checks I ever got, my first company were like $5,000 investor checks, right? Like it took a minute, but a lot of people are quick to be dismissive of Cleveland. You, We're building a world-class company in Cleveland. Like, you know, Mac Anderson, those guys are building a world-class company here in Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of really fantastic companies here. So that's one. You know, just find people that early on are experts in what you're trying to do. And you don't even have to hire them, even if, uh, you know, you, you hire them for an hour of their time. Those little things can save you months and months of time, because if it's not just that they can tell you what to do, they may be able to open up. Oh, you're trying to get a manufacturer from that. There are three people that do that. So that's something early on I just didn't know to do. Now we save all sorts of time by going to someone who's world-class at what they do. Usually like they've, their company's exited and maybe they're the number two or three person at that company. There's all sorts of people like that. So that's another thing that I think can save a lot of time. I appreciate both, both of those uh, perspectives because I, I think they're, 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 they're worth knowing, particularly on the, on the, the fundraising side. I think, you know, it's, it's there if, if there's a, you know, an underlying vision and, and, uh, product. Yeah, you may not be able to raise 50 million bucks here, but you can certainly raise a million. There's no doubt about that. Right on. So we'll we'll bookend it here with our traditional closing question tied still to, to Cleveland, which is for not necessarily your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other folks may not know about, a hidden gem. Well, I would say the hidden gem is the South Chagrin Reservation. If you come here, it's like walking in Colorado. There's waterfalls, there's amazing trees, there's awesome hiking. So I'd probably say that. Beautiful spot. Well, Afif, thank you so much for uh, for coming on today and, and sharing your story. I'm, I'm really glad the 
the dots got connected in, in the way they did and that we were able to have you on today. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If anyone had anything that they wanted to, to follow up with you about or learn more about Biome Health, what is the, the best way for them to do so? Uh, then go to biomehealth.com, B-I-O-H-M health.com. Or if they you know want to connect, LinkedIn's probably the easiest. It's just A-F-I-F and my last name's G-H-A-N-N-O-U-M. And I'm pretty active there. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Awesome. I appreciate it. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.